Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you all here today. So glad to have you. And for everyone who's watching online, glad to have you all here as well. Colton mentioned it in his announcement, but um, our girl intern, Emily, she is going to be coming, arriving in time for Life Group tonight. She's not here just yet because she actually got out of college a little later because she uh, she actually runs track at ACU. And so she was able, she got out a little later, but I hope you all come. And, and I want to invite you all. I know Colton's been here for a little while, but we have a tradition here here that anytime I am trying to recruit or hire an intern to come, I tell them, I cannot guarantee you're going to have the most fun summer ever. I cannot guarantee that you're going to love living in Clifton, Texas, but I can guarantee you, you will leave and feel like this church family really cared for you, okay? So you got, y'all got to hold up your end of that, all right? And I, But I know you will. You always go above and beyond, but... Today, we are starting a new sermon series. Um, we finished our sermon series last uh, two weeks ago. Thank you. Let's give a round of applause to Dan Fowler for, uh, for his message last Sunday. And uh, we appreciate, I appreciate him doing that a lot. Um, we're going to start a new series today, and I will just be upfront with you. This series is kind of a passion project for me. I, uh, I've, wrote, I've written this down, and I'm going to kind of read from it because I don't really want to mess up the wording. But uh, about a year ago, I had a very difficult conversation. I won't get into all the details because I'd like to try and keep this as anonymous as possible. But one of my best friends from growing up, which just by saying that, I've narrowed that down. But one of my best friends growing up and I had a, a breakfast together where... Uh, he tried to find the words to communicate with me that he didn't really uh, believe or he didn't really know what he believed in. And, and there were other things going on, but uh, he basically was, we were talking about that. And uh, he had some major life decisions that were going on and Jesus was not being considered in those at all. Uh, more, uh, you could maybe use the word uh, not just ignored, but maybe purposefully not factored in. And I remember driving home from that breakfast, crying as I was driving. And part of why it was so painful for me was I felt like this was one of my best friends that I had actually stayed connected with from childhood. And yet, I thought, man, sh- should I have talked a little less about sports and movies and a little bit more about faith if this was my real best friend. But then another reason that it, it stood out to me and it stuck with me and, and, and really was the fruit of this sermon series is that we had the same childhood and yet we were as 30-year-olds in completely different places when it came to Jesus Christ. He was not a minister's kid, but he went to church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. He, like me, I remember when we'd spend the night on Saturday night together. It was, hey, we know we can't stay up too late because we're having a dozen donuts in the morning and we're going to church. And we're not going to just go to church. We're going to go to class too. We had that same upbringing. His parents, his dad would come. My dad would come every Friday from all of my elementary school and read a book to my class, read a, a, a book to my class every Friday of my childhood. And his dad would come fairly often, and I always remember, both of our dads, before we did anything, his dad would say, hey, we're all going to pray. And, you know, oh, you know, and we'd pray. 
We had the same parents who loved each other. We had parents who, my parents were comfortable with me spending the night at his house and hanging out with him all the time because they knew I wasn't going to be around a lot of cussing. They knew we weren't going to put in movies that we shouldn't be watching. It was a good influence on my life. And why, why are we at this different point now? And, and honestly, the thing I was thinking about was I kept thinking, how do I try to have my children have a relationship with Jesus that's at least having one rather than not, okay? Do you see, uh, you see where I'm at, okay? And I will tell you, as I was driving and thinking about what can I do, I want you to say in your mind, we have less control than we ever want to admit about what happens to our children and their faith. If you think you have a lot of control, you don't. You do have some influence, though. And so my question to myself was, with the little bit of influence that I have, what should I do? What can I do to hope that my children will, when they're 30, when they're 60, when they're 90, say, I would like to have a relationship with Jesus. He is my Lord. And this is the place that I have arrived. This is the answer that I've come to, which may be wrong. It may be, it may be in a couple years I come up with a different answer. But as of now, this is where my heart is at, and I pray that God grants me the strength and the wisdom to implement this in Catherine and I's life. I believe that all I have that I can do is give my entire life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and pray that my children see it and are so gripped by it that they want a taste of it. Okay? And so, this sermon series was born out of that and me asking the question. I remember you know, calling mentors and people and saying, if you looked at my life and you looked at someone who didn't believe in Jesus, I think you could see some differences. But it's not that different. Do you know what I mean? There's really not that many things that I... And I think if Christ is really my Lord, it should look pretty different in a lot of key ways. And so in this series, what I'm going to be doing and what I'm going to be exploring is how do, we, how do we look at every possible aspect of our life and say, if Christ was really the Lord of my money and really the Lord of my time and really the Lord of my heart and really the Lord of my household and really the Lord of my sexuality, what is that going to look like? Okay? That's going to be the topic. Because I am convinced that, and I don't know how many people felt this way growing up, but I know that there are plenty of parents who believe, well, if I can just get them to sit in a chair for an hour once a week, they're going to love Jesus. If I can just make sure I get them in the car and get them here. By the way, that's a good thing to do. I'm not telling you not to do that. But that isn't going to cut it in the future. Does that make sense? Even if, it, if it ever did cut it in the past. But when we think, oh, well, just getting them here once a week for an hour, we're gonna, they're going to love Jesus, that's not the answer. What the answer is, is lordship of their life. Sorry. I am under the opinion, and I believe, that I want Landry Joe to watch Catherine and I and be so... You know, they... Uh, this isn't in here, and then I'll... But when Catherine goes out there to our garden and is giving a lot of attention to our garden, guess what Landry Joe loves to do? She loves to go out to the garden. Whenever she sees her mom, you know, taking care of a baby, guess what Landry Joe spends her whole time doing? Taking care of a baby. Getting her baby dolls and, oh no, shh. 
And, and what has she been doing all week? Last week, I was able to do a wedding. All week, she's been saying, I take this ring, and I, okay, I'm serious. You know, Mama, am I going to marry Marshall? No, that's not how it works. But all week, because she sees it, right? So that is what I am predicating this series off of. And I hope that you'll bear with me that each week, I don't know what the answer is going to be. But each week, I'm going to really try to look at, if Christ is the Lord of my money, how should that look different? And I'm going to, I'm not going to, I don't have some pre-written lesson. I'm going to study it. And then you can tell me, no, I don't think that's it or but we're going to study it together. Okay, so this is what this series is going to be about. It will ex- we will explore all the ways that Christ wants to be our Lord. He cannot be Lord of part of our life. He has to be Lord of all of it. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Total surrender. And I think you'll find as we go through this series, there's going to be some lessons that you go, hey, I'm actually, that actually I feel like I'm doing that pretty good. And others, you're going to go, whoa, that looks nothing like how I make Christ the Lord of my household. Or there's going to be the opposite. Some people are going to feel like they, they, they don't have lordship over that. Christ doesn't have lordship over one part where someone else is strong. But other places are going to feel great. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk about Christ as Lord in two different angles at this to set us up for this series. So the first angle, oh, well, I said this. Let me, let me read this. If Christ is truly my Lord, how would that change every corner of my life? This is the premise of the series that I'm asking myself, and I'd like us to explore together. So the first thing I want us to look at is Jesus, my Lord and teacher. I want to make sure I say part of the inspiration of this section is from a really great lesson I heard by an author named John Mark Comer. So if you want to check him out, he's amazing, and he he really pointed this out to me. So the first thing I want to do is, some of you may hear this, and this may be totally new to you. Some of you may hear this, and you've heard it a million times. But I think it's always worth refreshing. I'm going to mention some phrases and terms that we use all the time in Bible class. But I'm going to, I'm going to, let's make sure we, we know what they mean. So the first one is rabbi, okay? You may have heard the word rabbi a million times. But a rabbi was a Jewish teacher a master teacher who would travel from town to town speaking about his yoke. What is his yoke? The yoke comes from the image of oxen having a yoke on their shoulders. But a yoke was a euphemism for your, a teacher's set of teachings and how they interpreted the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay? Wait. Yes. Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Some people call it the Pentateuch, like a pentagon. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay? How do they interpret uh, the prophets? How do they interpret the Psalms, the, the Torah? Okay? And we see in the New Testament, 60 times Jesus is referred to as rabbi or teacher. And then I got one more word for you. All right? This one I know you haven't heard of. Talmudin, which is the Hebrew word for where we get disciple or student, or the best word is apprentice. I know a lot of you maybe know some professions where if you want to be in that career, you have to apprentice with someone in order to get that job, right? Don't electricians have to do apprenticeships? Don't like diesel mechanics have to do apprenticeships? What does it look like? You ask a master diesel mechanic, Can I come learn from you? And you go and you follow and you watch and you learn and you listen. You are that teacher's shadow. Okay? Okay, so with these terms in mind, I'm now going to talk a little bit about the three levels of the Jewish education system. Okay? I also think you probably haven't heard of this. 
Bet Sefer means house of book. Remember I told you all Bet means house. So Bethel, house of God. Bethlehem, Lehem means bread, house of bread. So Bet Sefer is house of the book. This would be basically like grade school. Kids would learn your basic things like reading and math, and they would learn the book, the Bible, or, you know, their Old Testament, the Old Testament, their Bible. And most everyone in this grade, by the time they were 12, would memorize Genesis through Deuteronomy. Or, yeah, most, or maybe even the whole Torah. But these 12-year-olds are memorizing most of this. This is grade school, okay? Now, the next level is called Bet Talmud, House of Learning. This is where most of the kids would stop going to school. Most kids after the first one, the House of the Book... Most of them, you would kind of quit going to school, and you would start, if you were a boy, you would start learning whatever the trade of your father was. If you were a girl, you'd get married as a 12 to 13 or 14-year-old, okay? So that's kind of how life went. And then, in this school, what would happen is the best male students from the grades before would learn from a full-time teacher and memorize the entire Old Testament, Okay? And then the best of these boys in the Bet Talmud, House of Learning, would go to what's called Bet Midrash, which is the house of study. And this is where if you were really the top of your class in the house of learning, so you got everybody in the house of the book, the best go to the next level. And then the best of those people would have the opportunity for a rabbi to come to them and say, I want you to be my Talmudin. I want you to be my disciple, to come and follow me. And what they would say is, to come make fishers of men, which was an idiom for saying, you are going to be such a good teacher that you catch the hearts and imaginations of people with your teaching and how you understand things. So, if you were fortunate enough and knew enough and were brilliant and you showed so much competence in this house of learning, then you would get to have an invitation to come and be my Talmudin, my disciple, my apprentice, being with that rabbi 24 hours a day, all the time. There's a, a Ray Vanderlaan, uh, says a, he says there's an Old Testament, I want to say like proverb or something like, where it says, may, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. As you're walking with them, may you be so close to them that the dust from their feet is covering you because you're so right there with your rabbi all the time. Okay, so let's read, with all that in mind, let's read from Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20. So while you're reading this, keep all that in mind. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. So for these young, these guys who are fishermen, they have just been told, I know you're not the star students in your class, but I want you to come follow me. And the, this would be an enormous honor in a Jewish family that a rabbi, especially a talented young rabbi like Jesus, would want you to come follow him. So they came, they left, and they followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. He didn't see what their, how well they knew Isaiah. Because this is what a rabbi would do. He'd get a student, he'd bring him in, and he'd say, what is your interpretation of the Nephilim in Genesis? 
Okay, what is your interpretation of what happens with Tamar? Okay, what's your interpretation of the disagreements between Father Rabbi this and Rabbi this and how they see this? What do you think? And they would drill them. And then if they did well enough, you can be my follower. Not Jesus. He saw them in their boats and he said, Come, follow me. And without delay, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Matthew 11, 28, 30. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay. With all this in mind, one of the biggest things I'm trying to come, get you to think about, to come across is, this is my takeaway. Often when we tell people, I want to become a Christian, sadly in our society, we treat it the same as, I want to become a part of the Lions Club. I want to become a part of the Rotary Club. I want to become a part of NHS. You get a cool little pin. Maybe if you're really into it, you run for treasurer or president. You show up once a week for an hour, you get some lunch, you chat, you get some of the social status that comes from being in NHS or Rotary or Lions, you rub elbows with the right kind of people, you're more likely to sell a house if you're a realtor, you're more likely to get clients at your bank if you're a banker. I'm a Christian. I'm a member. This is not what Jesus had in mind when he said, come be my disciple. Come be be with me all the time. Follow me. Be my apprentice. Watch how I speak and speak like that. Watch how I pray and pray like that. Watch how I live and live like that. Watch how I treat my money and treat your money like that. You with me? Okay? Dallas Willard has this awesome quote. Don't know if... I don't think I've ever referenced him before, but I'm going to reference him now. I'm joking. This is the guy that's our Sunday morning class. He wrote the book, Renovation of the Heart. But he says, The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs. If you think of all the needs in the world, of human trafficking, of, of people dying of starvation, of, of lack of water in parts of our country, with all the world's heartbreaking needs, the greatest issue facing all those needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians, whether they will become disciples, students, pr apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's pretty good. Okay, the second thing, the second part of this series. So, throughout this series, I'm going to have the lens of what does it mean if Jesus is my Lord and my teacher, my rabbi. And now, I want us to think about, I do think we need to reflect on the idea of Jesus as my Lord and King. I'm going to be nerdy for a second here, but I'm going to reference something. How many of you are familiar with something called the Magna Carta? Anybody ever have to learn about the Magna Carta? I don't know a ton about it, um, but what I do know, enough for me to remember it for this sermon, is that in the year 1215, enough of the lords in England were fed up with the king that they said, listen, we need you and I, we've got to agree that you cannot be a tyrannical king anymore. We've got to set some ground rules here so that we can live. And it was one of the very first examples ever of the people that weren't king kind of making the king be a little, have some uh, checks and balances with the people. A lot of our government is rooted in some of the things from the Magna Carta, like a protection for church rights. Hey, you king, no matter what you think, we've got to have some protection about our way that we do church. 
No matter who the king is, we've got to have some protection over just being illegally imprisoned for no, no, no reason. We've got to have access to swift justice. You, king, you're not allowed to just put us in jail for no reason and then just forget about us in there. We have the right to swift justice. And most importantly, for them, we have the right for you to limit how much you're going to tax us, okay? Does any of that sound like stuff that, you know, is important to a lot of us in this room, okay? And up until that point, that may seem like normal to us, but up until that point, kings didn't have to answer to anybody for any of that. If a king wanted to do something, it was, I'm going to do it and you're going to listen, okay? But we as people grate against the idea and we resent the idea that there is another person out there who has the ability to control us. We do not like to be ruled by anyone. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But... With this series, you need to hear this from me transparently. Part of being a follower of Jesus is reclaiming the idea that we are excited about Christ ruling our life. I know that may be hard for you to admit, but if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to be willing to say, I want you to be my Lord. As Revelation puts it, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and they lay their crowns before the throne. They take their ability to rule, their authority, their lordship, and they say, I want you to be king. And often, as we mentioned in class, we get to a place sometimes where we think, well, I'm pretty sure that's not how God feels about that topic. And if we're not careful, God looks an awful lot like what we think rather than us being subservient to what the Bible thinks and what God thinks. Does that make sense? If we're not careful, if it, it, it starts to look an awful lot like, well, I'm pretty sure God's good with that. But if we're truly saying, if God is my Lord, then He is not good with that kind of use of our money. That is a misrepresentation. Oh, but I think God's good with it. What is God good with? If he really is my Lord, what should I do? The story I have from the Bible to talk about this comes from Exodus chapter 1. I love this story. It's a long read, but it's worth it. Um, then a new king, a new Lord, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. This is starting in verse 8, if you want to follow along. I'm going to skip one section, but read most of it. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. By the way, a very rational thought, you know. That's not, that's not a crazy person. That's a really good point. Man, if, if, if the Assyrians come and attack us, and they've got an, an army of slaves that's like a million people, yeah, we're in trouble. You know what I mean? Okay. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built uh, Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The more they were oppressed, the more they became multiplied and spread. I think you should log that one away if ever you're feeling oppressed. Just saying. Okay. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were... Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that that baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, 
Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives get there. They lie. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Oh, yeah. Because they feared God, he gave them families of their own. I love this story because the king has the authority to tell you to do whatever you are supposed to do. And they decided, you are not king over God. God is my king, and so I am going to do what God wants me to do because he is the Lord of my life. And so here is where I think this king and Lord part is really important. The world will know by our actions who our king and Lord is. Whatever I show, end up doing with my money, I will admit whether democracy or, or consumerism or uh, market whatever is my Lord or God is. Whatever I do with my household, it will determine whether fame or notoriety or whatever is my Lord or God is. Does that make sense? Whatever I do with every single aspect of my life, you will have other people and other things vying for your lordship to be your ruler and king. And God will also be there, and it's up to us to try and say, I am going to make sure that God is my lord, and I'm going to do what God would want me to do if he's my lord. So the last thing is, living under the lordship of Jesus is better. Throughout this series, I'm going to try to argue and make the point that every time we come to a place of God is the Lord of my blank, which means I should live like blank, I will end the sermon by saying, so that is the better way to live, whether you believe it or not. If I say God is the Lord of my time, so you should slow down and give room for rest and margin in your life, that's the better way. Wait, I don't know if I can do that. No, I don't think I might... uh, It's the way of Jesus. He's my Lord. It's better. It's not a walk in the park. It is the only way to true life. It's not going to be prosperous. You are not going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise from this. But it is good, and you will, it will lead to the good life that Jesus has in mind. If you would like to talk more about what it means to make Christ your Lord, whether you've been sitting in church for an hour or for 60 years, all of us can think of ways that Christ needs to be more of our life. But if you want to make Christ the Lord of your life and you want to talk about that, we're going to have elders standing at the doors, and many of us would love to talk with you while we stand and sing this song.